0: I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're looking in the pew Bible in front of you, you ought to find it on page 330. Page 330. Some of you probably know this if you have... uh, kids this week was uh, Dr. Seuss week at all the local schools I think Friday was the birthday and uh, Colby and I got invited to go out to Goshen Elementary on Friday and read to some classes and uh, I wasn't really quite sure you know what to expect about what I'd be reading or what class but we got there and they were just kind of like just sort of wander around and you know poke your head in and wherever you want to go and so we uh, kind of went and got, got into one classroom, and then after I got done reading that class, I was just kind of walking around the halls trying to find an empty classroom that might let me come and read to them. And I was walking past. There was uh, several other people there reading, and one of the people there was a sheriff's deputy for Pike County. And I was walking past this classroom, and uh, I could see him as I was walking past. He was standing there, and he was reading, and I couldn't see you know his hands. I couldn't see the book or anything, but I could just hear him reading Dr Seuss and as I was walking past and later uh, that afternoon as I was driving home I was just thinking about that you know image and that visual and that uh, audible sound and I was thinking you know if I what if I didn't know that it was Dr Seuss week what if I'd never heard of Dr Seuss and I was just walking past a room with a a man in a sheriff's uniform with a gun on his hip Standing in front of a room of you know fourth graders, just reading something that sounded like total nonsense, you know, because uh, Dr. Seuss is, is sort of silly. There's sneetches on beaches and uh, domineering turtles named Yertle and all all kinds of different things. That would be very confusing if if I didn't have any context about what that day was and what in the world he was doing there. Context is is really really important, and the same is true when we're reading. The Bible, we, we need to have some sense of where this is coming from. And uh, this morning as we read, we're going to be jumping into the middle of a conversation, as it were, between God and David. Our focus this morning is going to be on the end of the chapter, on verses 18 through 29, which is David's response to God. But uh, it's, it's going to help us make sense of what David says if we can recall the words to which he is responding. And so we're going to back up and begin reading at verse 8. And as we do so, I want you to pay careful attention to what God promises David in this covenant. Now, quick, before we read, um, as I was sitting there, as Colby was praying, I just, the Lord, you know, kind of laid something on my my heart Um, this past week. Um, Nixon, just for whatever reason, has, has had a, a hard time going to sleep at, at bedtime and nap time. And it's like he's just something is going on in his mind. He's got a lot to think about and he's just got a very active mind. And sometimes he has a hard time shutting it off. And I'm the same way I can relate to that. And uh, there have been a couple nights and a couple nap times where I've just been sort of saying to him, Buddy, you know, calm down. Quiet. I just want him to to sort of stop wrestling and 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 just settle down and just hear the voice of his father. Hear hear me say, "I love you. Everything's okay. There's no monsters that are going to come out of your closet." Uh, and and hear me sing over him. And as I was thinking about that, as Colby was praying, I, I thought about one of my favorite verses of scripture, one that I sometimes quote to myself, Psalm. 131, Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And so I just thought about that and I thought, you know, you may be uh, a little bit like that this morning. For whatever reason, I don't know, maybe uh, your, your soul's just in turmoil. There's something in your mind that you're having a hard time setting aside. And so I, I just want us to pause before we read Scripture and ask God to help us to calm and quiet our soul and to hear the voice of our Father in this Word. So let's just take a moment and let's pray before we read and let's ask God to do that in our hearts. Lord, we are thankful that you are a good father and that you speak assuring promises to us and you speak truth to us. Lord, when sometimes our hearts are prone to wonder and our minds are prone to deceive ourselves and to forget your truth. And so, God, I pray that as we we hear your word this morning, that we would be like the psalmist, that we would calm and quiet our soul in your presence, and God, that we would be ready to hear what you would have to say to us. Spirit of God, help us to do that today, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's read together Second Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 8. This is God speaking. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you, for you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before Your people whom You redeemed for Yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And You established for Yourself Your people, Israel, to be Your people forever. And You, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that You have spoken concerning Your servant and concerning his house, and do as You have spoken." And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to be as David, to hear this and to say that this is true, because you are always true, and you have promised good things to your servants. God, help us to hear this and to plead this before you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things I want you to notice about God's words to David in the first part of the chapter is that while God certainly um, makes promises to David about what he will do for him in the future, he also reminds David about what He has already done for him in the past. You can hear this very clearly in verses 8 and 9 where God says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, past tense, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. He's reminding David of all that he has done for him and then at the end of verse 9 that uh, turns to the future. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And then the rest of, most of the covenant between God and David is, is forward looking. It extends throughout David's life and beyond. As God says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, David when you are dead I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So notice, even when David is dead, God's still going to be fulfilling his part of the covenant. He's going to still be fulfilling his promises. In fact, three times God uses the word forever. That's not a small word. Forever is a big word that has huge implications. So a lot of the covenant is forward-looking, but God also um, has been working Already for a long time he reminds David of that. So as we hear David's response in verses 18 through 29, we're going to see that David does the same thing God did, which is he looks back on God's grace to him in the past, and he also looks forward to the promise of God's future grace. And David serves as our example here. So simple breakdown for this passage. It's really plain, We can praise God for His past grace. We see that in verses 18 through 24. That's what David does. He praises God for His past grace. And we can petition God for His future grace. And we see that in verses 25 through 29. So let's start with David praising God for His past grace. I want you to notice that as David remembers and recalls the goodness of God, to him in the past, his view of God's greatness is enlarged. I'll give you an illustration to help make sense of that. About 25 years ago, an author named Bob Shogren, uh made up this idea called cat and dog theology. Now some of you may have heard that because I've probably mentioned it before, but it, if, if not, I'll explain it to you. What is cat and dog theology? Now, before I explain to you what this is, I do want to be clear that um, the Simmons household, we are cat people, unashamedly. Uh, I don't have any problem with dogs. I just would rather them be at your house, and I can come visit them and pet them and talk to them and play with them, and then I go home, and they're not there. Um, We have tried other pets. We, We recently tried two mice, and that lasted about... Uh, 48 hours. Uh, so we've tried mice. We've tried dogs. None of them have lived up to the, uh, the dignity and cleanliness and calmness of cats. But if you're a dog person, don't be offended by that because you're really going to like this analogy if you're a dog person. So everybody's going to be, be happy at the end of this, I think. So Bob uh, Shogren came up with this cat and dog theology. And the idea, something that we all know, which is that cats and dogs are very different, right? Other than the physical difference, they they view their human companions in opposite ways. Dogs have masters, right? The dog looks at his owner and he says, You feed me. You pet me. You give me shelter. You love me. You must be God. The dog just... You're so great. They get so happy and they wiggle their tail when you come home. They're just so excited to see you. Cats are the opposite. Cats don't have masters. Cats own their humans, right? The cat looks at you and says, you feed me. You pet me. You give me shelter. You love me. I must be God. So Here it is, cat and dog theology. Dog says, you feed me, you pet me, you give me shelter, you love me, you are so great. And the cat says, you do all this stuff for me. You feed me, you pet me, you give me shelter. If it's an inside cat, you you clean up my litter box. I must really be something special. So there's cat theology and dog theology. One of them is self-centered. One of them looks at everything that the human does and thinks, wow, I must really be special. And the other one is centered on the the one who's doing all the the stuff. So if we apply that analogy to 2 Samuel 7, to what David prays here in the last half of the chapter, which of those kind of theologies is is he practicing? He's practicing dog theology. David looks at all that God has done for him, and all that God has promised to do for him, and his response is not... Boy, howdy, I must really be somebody. Notice how he begins in verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? I don't deserve this. Verse 19, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. In fact, forever. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. In other words, David says, what you have done so far is small in comparison with what you've promised to do. Because so far you've been at work in my life and in my house. But you've made promises that span into eternity. And you've made promises that, that capture up all of humanity in them. That's the greatness of the promise. It's not just that God's going to do good things for David's house during David's lifetime, but the covenant is that God's going to do something great for the whole world for all of eternity. And so David's response is not, I must be God. His response is, Who am I? And what kind of God must the Lord be if He makes such promises to such lowly people as me? Looking in at what he says in verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So David sort of asks rhetorically, why has God done this? And his answer is not because of anything in David, but simply because of his own promise. And as David puts it, according to your own heart. Why has God made this covenant with David? David's answer is according to God's own heart. That's why. So what does that mean? Well, David is often called a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? I used to struggle with that. David was a man after God's own heart because, and you should struggle with that because if you, if you read the text, you see that David is not perfect. He's not been perfect so far and just wait a few chapters and he's going to really be not perfect here in a, in a little while. So how can David you know, be so sinful and mess up so much and yet he's still called a man after God's own heart? Well, that phrase can be a little bit confusing, man after God's own heart. Because the way we sometimes take it to mean is that that means that David's heart is like God's or that David's heart is set on God. And there's a sense in which that's true. Not perfectly, but... David believes God's promises. He does repent when he sins, which distinguishes him from Saul. So in that regard, he, he is like God in some ways. He's not perfectly holy, but he's, he's a righteous sinner. But that phrase really doesn't have anything to do with that. It, it means that God's heart is set on David. So you have to kind of take a step back to make sense of this. Where does that phrase come from, man after God's own heart? It comes from 1 Samuel 13. Way back in 1 Samuel 13, when Saul was the king, and Saul had sinned and sinned and sinned, and uh, Samuel got up and spoke to the people, and he said, listen, you, this is the king whom you have chosen. That's what he says to them. Behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Well, in other words... Saul is a king after Israel's own heart. That's what they said. We want a king like all the other nations. That's what they said in 1 Samuel 8. We want a king like all the other nations. And they were neglecting the fact that they already had in God a a perfectly righteous king. And so it turns out that Saul was a king just like all the other nations. He was wealthy and he was powerful. He was tall and handsome and all that. He was visibly impressive. He came from a, an established family. So he was a king like all the other nations, but he was also a king like all the other nations, which meant he was corrupt. And he did not really care about what God had said. He looked out for his own interests rather than looking out for God's interests and for the interests of his own people. And in contrast, David was a man after God's own heart. That's what Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel 13. He just said to the people, Saul is the king whom you have chosen. And then Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people Israel. Saul was tall and wealthy and accomplished. David was a poor shepherd from Podunk, Bethlehem. And yet Saul was the Man of Israel's choosing. He was the the man that if we had been around, we probably would have elected him too. And David was God's man. He was the man of God's choosing. He was God's choice for king. That does not mean that David is sinless, it means that he is God's anointed one. That's what David is delighting in here in 2 Samuel 7. He's delighting in the fact that before God got a hold of him, he was a nobody from nowhere. His prayer begins with, Who am I, O Lord God, that you have brought me thus far? And his answer to his own question is, According to your own heart. That's why you've done this. Not because of me, not because of who I am, not because of of anything in me, but simply according to God's own heart. David knows that the reason he is king has nothing to do with himself. It has everything to do with God's purpose. And that is... Grace. Grace is unmerited, unearned favor. And that is what David is acknowledging that God has shown to him. God lifted David up and established him, not because he was wealthy or accomplished or any of those other things, but simply because God had a plan for him. And David responds to that grace rightly. He responds not with cat theology, but with dog theology. Notice verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. Right? God had said to David, I'm going to make you a great name. And David's response is not, I must really be great. His response is, therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears." So David is not a perfect man, but he sets a good example for us here in this regard. The right response when we look back on the past is to say, boy, God has shown me a whole lot of grace. And that grace, all of that goodness that He has shown me is not evidence of how great I am, but it's evidence of how great God is. There is none like Him. There is no God besides Him. There's, there's no God like Him. Our response to His grace ought to be the same kind of reverent and joyful praise. We ought to praise Him for that. As I was digging through this passage this week, this line from the hymn Amazing Grace kept coming to my mind. "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." That's a pretty good summary of 2 Samuel 7, 18-29. David looks back. And says, wow, God's grace has brought me safe thus far. And then in the last uh, part of this passage, he looks forward and he says, and God's grace is going to lead me home. So we've seen David declare his confidence, his, uh, his joy that God's grace has brought him safe thus far. He praises God for his past grace and now he declares his confidence that God's grace is going to lead him home. And the way he does that. It's important that we notice how he does that is he petitions God for his future grace. We see him do that in verses 25 through 29. Now this is really, really important because what I want you to see here is is David does not simply say, God, you have been so good. You've shown me so much grace. Who am I? Who is my house that you've brought me thus far And yet this was a small thing for you. You've promised much greater things than what you've already done. It's because of your promise and according to your heart that you've done this. Therefore you are great, O Lord. There's none like you. There's no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And then what David could do at the end is he could say, And God, I praise you that you have made me such wonderful promises for what you're going to do for me in the future. David could do that, but that's not what he does. He doesn't just praise God for all these promises. But what he actually does is he asks God to do what God has just told him he's going to do. Notice this with me. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant... And concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, do as you have spoken, think about that now, on the one one hand, you could say, well, that 's kind of arrogant of David, you know I mean does God really need david 's permission? Of course, david 's not being arrogant here. God does not need david 's permission god 's not sitting around saying, boy i 've got this really." good plan. I'm going to tell it to David and I sure hope he'll go along with it. I sure hope he'll let me do it. That's not, that's not how God operates. God has just told David what he's going to do. He does not need David to say, yep, sounds good. I approve of your plan. God doesn't need David to do that, but he also does not need David to lay out an alternative plan. He doesn't need David to say, oh well, God, but have you thought about this? Are you aware of this? Have you considered this alternative? Prayer is not when we give God permission to do anything, and it's not when we inform God of something He didn't know about. We're not coming to God and say, Hey, God, I don't know if you noticed, but this is happening. That's not what prayer is. And prayer is certainly not us twisting God's arm to perform our agenda. Prayer is when we agree with God that His ways are right, that His plan is trustworthy, that His grace is sufficient, that His wisdom is perfect, that His power is unmatched. And prayer is when we ask God to be who He has said He is and to do what He has said He will do. So prayer is when we say, God, You have said You are this. And so will You be that in this particular situation? And God, You have said that You will do this. So will you do that now in this situation? It's do as you have spoken. We're not giving God permission, but it's like like we're taking our hearts and we're saying amen to what God has said. We're petitioning Him to do what He has promised He will do. Now, here's the tricky part. We don't always know precisely what it is that God's going to... Be pleased to do in every single situation. There are some things we can know. We can know God's character and we can know a lot about His will and what He's promised He'll do. But we face situations every day when we, we come up against them and we say, I don't know what God's will is in this situation. This, this happens to me every time we gather together and pray, and somebody will mention some prayer request. And uh, I'll say, you know, in my head I'm thinking, I don't know what God's will is, right? Because obviously we want, our, our desire is for everybody to be healed. But we know that, I mean, the the, the death statistics are 100%, right? So w- w- someday God's going to not heal them or He's going to heal them in a better way. Or we, we may say, um, God, I, you know, maybe there's somebody who's going through a burden and we say... Um, Lord, we really our desire is that you would take that burden away. But we know from Scripture that Paul, Paul had a burden, he called it a thorn in the side in his flesh, and he says he prayed three times, and God wouldn't take it away, because God said, I've got something better for you, Paul. Rather than taking it away, I'm going to show you that my grace is sufficient for you and that my power is perfected in weakness. So God wanted David, he wanted Paul to be weak. He wanted to feel that weakness so that he would see God's grace magnified in his life. So when we when we pray for those things, obviously it's good and right for us to bring our request to God and say, God, if we could have you know our, our, our way, we would really love for this person to be healed and for them not to have to suffer and not to have any pain and to get over this quickly and we would like for this burden to be alleviated. But we also we have to know in the back of our mind that God may have some other plan. He may have a better plan in mind. The point I want us to take away this morning is that There are certain prayers we can pray with absolute 100% confidence. There are certain ways we can pray where we are guaranteed that the answer is going to be yes. So if we want our prayers to be effective, we, we need to pay attention to what God has said in His Word. That's what David is doing here. He's taking the promise of God and he's pleading it before God. He's saying, do as you have spoken. I mean, think about how powerful a prayer that is. God, you have bound yourself to this promise. It would be like if if I promised one of my sons some amazing toy for Christmas, and I gave him a guarantee, I will give you the toy. And then we go to Walmart and they see the toy and they say, Dad, do as you have spoken. Right? That's a, that's a petition that if I'm a, a good father, if I'm a man of my word, I have to do it because I've already promised them I'll do it. Now I may say, not today. I may say, not yet. I may say, you have to wait. But they can ask me that with confidence because I've already said I'm going to do it. And if I'm, my, if I'm a man of my word, then I'll do it. And God is a God of His Word. He always speaks truthfully. And so David's saying, God, You have said that this is Your intention. Now do as You have spoken. But we can't pray that prayer if we don't know what He has spoken. And so one really practical way we can apply this truth is by reminding ourselves when we pray... That while we don't know all of God's will, we can know a great deal about God's will. So here's what I want to do for us in the time we have remaining. I don't want you to try to turn to every scripture passage that I'm going to reference, but you may write write it down and read these later. I'm going to give you a bunch of biblical texts that speak clearly about God's will. And as you pray... For yourself or for others, by all means, pray, make your requests known to God. Lay your heart out before God. If you want them to be healed, then pray for them to be healed. If you want the burden to be taken away, then pray for the burden to be taken away. If you want them to get that job, pray for them to get that job. If you want them to pass that test, pray for them to pass that test. But don't just pray those things that uh, you're unsure about what God's going to do. Stand on these promises. It's, it's striking uh, that this, the, the writer of Samuel tells us that David sat down when he did this. The king, king David went and sat before the Lord, so he's sitting, but, but he's standing on the promises of God. So here are some promises of God for you to pray. First Thessalonians four verses three through seven. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to know what God's will is? There it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So you may not know if it's God's will to heal someone or to alleviate a burden or to open the door, but here's a rock-solid, crystal-clear statement of truth. God's will is for His people to be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We don't know everything about God's will, but we know a lot about it. It's His will that we would rejoice always, that we would pray without ceasing, and that we would give thanks in all circumstances. So when you pray for yourself or for someone else, you can pray that. Pray God help them to have joy in this time of trial. Help them to pray without ceasing. Help them to give thanks in this circumstance because this is God's will in Christ Jesus for them. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this. Not I, I hope or I really would like for this to happen, but I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So when you face uncertainty, take hold of something that is sure and true. Take that promise of God and plead it before God for yourself and others. God, you have said that if you began a good work in me or in this person I'm praying for, that you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do as you have spoken. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 through 5. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 through 5. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Notice what Paul says there. God will establish you and guard you against the evil one. There's no biblical passage or verse that says that God will keep you from all harm or all trouble. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. But here's a rock-solid promise from God. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one that's spiritual protection which is a whole lot worth uh, worth a whole lot more than physical protection so by all means ask for physical protection but don't just ask for physical protection ask god to do as he has spoken to establish and to guard against the evil one james 1:5 1, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. How often have you known somebody who's facing, or maybe it's you, who's facing some decision that they have to make? Pray James 1.5 for them or for yourself. God, you have said that you give wisdom generously without reproach to people who ask you for it. Meaning God doesn't say, you fool, you know, why do you need wisdom? He does he says he does it without reproach. So God doesn't, doesn't sit around and say, I can't believe. There he is asking me for wisdom again. <laughs> When's he ever going to figure this out for himself or for herself? He gives it generously, without reproach. So pray that. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verses 15 and 16. This is the will of God. I want to know what God's will is? Here it is. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. In that passage in 1 Peter 2, Peter's talking about the fact there are lots of people in the world who would very much like to say, oh, all this Christianity and all this church business, it's all bogus. And the reason is because all these Christians are hypocrites. Well, Peter was right because have you not heard that before, right? Peter says, the solution is this, live righteously. Live in such a way that when... Foolish people ignorantly try to bring reproach on the name of Jesus that you will shut them up with your lifestyle. And Peter says that's God's will. That by doing good, you should shut up the ignorance of foolish people. That you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then he says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You're free, but don't live in such a way that your freedom would just be an excuse for sin, but that your freedom would be something you would use to live as a servant of God. So pray that for yourself and for others. The whole Bible is filled with God telling us His will. Micah 6.8 he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's Micah 6, 8. Galatians 5, 16 through 23. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, this is God's will. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. That's Galatians five, sixteen through twenty-three. If you want to know what God's will is, his will is for you to be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and have self control. So you may not know God's will in every way, but you know that says we'll pray that. Do as you have spoken, Lord. Philippians four, four through six, this is the last one. Philippians 4, 4 through 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Have you ever been anxious about something? Have you ever known someone who is facing some circumstance that you know is going to make them anxious? Pray that. Pray that for them. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4.6 is a good place for us to end this morning. It says, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Is that not what David does in 2 Samuel 7? With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He looks back and praises God for all the grace He's shown him thus far. And he looks forward and trusts God for all the future grace that He's promised to him. He petitions the Lord to do what He has said He will do. Now, here's the important thing. When you petition God to do what He has said He will do, you're not lacking faith in that moment. Sometimes I get frustrated with our boys because it feels that way. If I say, you know, we're going to go here and then they keep asking me, are we going to go there? Are we going to go there? Did I not say we're going to go there? I said we're going to go there. Quit asking me. God's a better father than I am. He doesn't, he doesn't get as impatient or frustrated as I do because He tells us to do that. He tells us, okay, here's, here's who I am. Here's all that I promised to do for you. And now I want you, I'm commanding you to keep asking me to do it. That's what prayer is. It's an exercise of faith. Faith that keeps petitioning God to do what He has said He will do. In fact, the Christian life begins there. It begins with someone who says, I know what God has done for me. I know that He sent His Son to live a sinless life, to die in my place for my sins that God raised Him from death. And I know that because of what God has done, He has promised to me that if I will trust in Jesus and call on Him in faith, He will forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's God's promise. He will not put to shame those who put their trust in Him. That's where the Christian life began. If you're a Christian, you began by doing that. You may not have thought of it that way, but that's what you were doing. You were taking a promise of God, and you were claiming it as your your own. You were hearing, maybe it was a promise like, uh, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. He said, that's a promise of God. And so I'm going to believe in Jesus, knowing and trusting that He has said that whoever believes in Him won't perish but have eternal life. And so I know that I'm going to have eternal life because I believed in Him. So that's where the Christian life begins, and that's what the Christian life is through and through. Not necessarily taking that exact promise, but taking all the promises of God and claiming them. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to Jesus. As we were singing earlier, I thought uh, another great um, promise in song form as we were singing One of my favorite lines from any hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. There's nobody, it is not possible for someone to, to believe in Jesus and not be pardoned. If you believe in Him, no matter how vile you are or how vile you think you are, you will receive a perfect and full pardon from Him if you believe in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for who You are. We praise You for what You have done. Lord, not only for what You've done in our lives, but most of all for what You did when You sent Your Son Jesus to take on our flesh and to become our sin so that we might be welcomed and accepted in Your sight. Lord, those of us who are here today are here, whether we have acknowledged it or not, because of your grace you have brought us thus far. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that grace and that we would praise you for it. And, Lord, also that you would give us hearts to trust in your promises to us. And God, that we would have a kind of confidence and that we would stand on the assurance that we have in you and in what you've said to us. Lord, now as we respond, I pray that you would help us to respond rightly in faith and in repentance. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.